with me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Read this morning uh, verses 12 uh, through 25. But this will read the same next week, so this will really be sort of part one for this passage. Uh, this week our, our focus will be on verses 12 through 22, and next week focus will be the next three verses particularly. Mark 11, beginning verse 12, carefully to God's holy word. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Being at a distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to them, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry the merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you obeyed the robber's death. Chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. They were afraid of him. The whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus saying to them, and Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying for people for anything against anyone, your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. In 2003, at the age of 19, uh, Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford uh, University and started a company called Theranos. If you follow the news much at all, you've heard of Theranos even recently in the news. Uh, Theranos was working on developing a machine that could do blood testing, all sorts of blood testing that you know, traditionally, you have to draw blood and file the blood and send it off to the lab for various labor-intensive tests. And on the promise, the massive groundbreaking promise of this machine, this company, was that all of that blood testing could be done automatically in a little machine from just a little tiny drop of blood, a fingerprint, rather than drawing blood. And, and Investors jumped on, they, they uh, raised a billion dollars for this company uh, initially, and uh, eventually Theranos was worth six billion dollars, and Elizabeth Holmes built an impressive compound there in Silicon Valley, um, and hired tons of engineers and scientists, and the technology was reportedly progressing and getting really close to providing this uh, affordable rapid blood testing. There were two other major companies that signed on, Walgreens and Safeway. Walgreens uh, uh, invested $140 billion, and Safeway $85 billion to have these little machines in their stores. 
Um, well, Elizabeth Holmes has been on trial the last few months, and uh, this last week was convicted on multiple counts of fraud. Uh, it, it turns out this has been known for years. You can watch uh, a documentary that's years old now about this. It turns out the whole operation was a sham. Uh, the, the technology never got anywhere near uh, doing real blood testing. Um, all the demonstrations that Elizabeth Holmes did for investors and Bitcoin and all rates were um, So for years, this lady put on a great show, a powerful company that could serve the medical community and the public in a, in a new way uh, that was empty. Empty promise. Well, similarly, Jesus confronts in this passage here we read this morning, uh, an active, impressive show of religion that turns out to be empty of fruit, empty of the fruit that God intended uh, for it to be bearing. Well, looking at um, point one on your outline there in the bulletin, what we have here is what turns out in comparison with the rest of Jesus' ministry to be a rather puzzling scene. Uh, two scenes around the fig tree and the temple. Uh, aside from uh, thinking about the, the fig tree, what happens with the fig tree here, aside from the resurrection, which is still to come, uh, this is the 18th and final miracle in the Gospel of Mark. This is the last one. But it's also the only miracle in all the Gospels that is, we might say, destructive, where Jesus uses his power not to heal, but to harm, to destroy something. Um, he curses this tree for not having what he expected, and the next day it's dead. It's destroyed. Um, it's a unique and maybe sort of strange scene. One biblical scholar about 100 years ago concluded this is a tale, he says, of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. Uh, Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, in his uh, famous essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, uh, cites this passage. Um, and says it's an example of Jesus' vindictive fury. In other words, maybe Jesus isn't so righteous as, as we hold him up to be. The um, sandwich between the incident of the fig uh, tree, of course, is Jesus at the temple. And now think of Jesus' ministry, his life and ministry up to this point, it's been marked by peace and humility. Back when they came into the world, the angels announced to the shepherds, peace. Right? And Jesus has talked often of peace. Uh, he's used only the word and spirit of God as, as offensive weapons. He doesn't attack people with his power, with an army. He's refused to respond to threats and plots against his life. He's, he's submitted to the temptation and humiliation by Satan in the wilderness. He only fought back with the word of God. And two days after this scene, he's going to submit to being arrested by mere men that he created and even though he called out legions of angels as, as the gospel said he will submit even to death and this is what he's been preaching and yet here in this one scene really uniquely we find Jesus driving people out of the temple by force physical force flipping over their tables and their chairs verse 16 preventing people from carrying things through the, the temple and, and going about their business. And, and in fact, it's, it seems, as we read the Gospels and compare, it seems that this is the second time Jesus has done this. John seems to describe a different time earlier in his ministry when, when Jesus 
did something very similar. And, and on that occasion, John describes that Jesus made a whip and whipped people and animals out of the temple courts and grabbed their containers of money, John says, and poured them out of the ground, flipping over their tables. It's, it's a dramatically, shockingly unique scene. What do we have here? Is Jesus stressed out or on edge or lashing out in vindictive fury? Uh, well, Jesus does nothing in uncontrolled, sinful anger. He gives us a small taste of, of and warning of the judgment of God against hypocrisy. And religion is impressive and active on the outside, but rotten on the inside. And the fig tree incident in the temple are, are closely related. The, the cursing of the fig tree is, is not Jesus just getting angry at the tree, but illustrating for his disciples what is going on at the temple and what's going to happen. It's, it's been understood throughout history, this incident, as an active parable. What Jesus does in the picture, an active parable of what Jesus confronts at the temple. And Jesus isn't, and Jesus is doing that with um, familiar imagery to, to the Jews, to those in Israel. Uh, Israel is often compared in the Old Testament to a tree. Um, sometimes a tree for judgment, and even more specifically, uh, often with, with, with the figure of figs or a fig tree. But here's just a few of those examples. Jeremiah 29, God speaks of, of judgment against his unfaithful people. He says, uh, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Bad figs. A Micah, the prophet Micah in chapter 7, the beginning of that chapter, he's um, lamenting the lack of faith and faithfulness in Israel around him. And he compares that to coming to a tree, but finding, like I said, one, no right faith that my soul desires. A disappointing victory. Um, Jeremiah chapter 8, God expresses his desire to gather to him people who love him and serve him, but this is what he finds. There are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. An empty fig tree. So Jesus is using a ancient and familiar uh, figure to illustrate what's going on in the temple. Uh, so let's look at both these incidents a little closer. Both of them, secondly on your outline, are guilty of false advertising. First, the tree, verse 12, we're told that you recall the immediate preceding um, story was the triumphal entry, as we call it. First day, Sunday of the week of Jesus' death. And they left, went back to Bethany, now they're coming back to Jerusalem, going back and forth to Bethany. And they left Bethany, it's a couple miles away, it's probably morning, they're hungry. Um, I'm hungry when I wake up, I come down, if we don't have eggs and cereal, I like it, can be disappointing. So I find this illustration somewhat relatable. Um, verse 13, Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance, and leaf, it says. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then he curses the tree. The, the difficult part in, this, in these couple of verses here is Mark's comment. There wasn't a season for figs. So it sounds like Mark's uh, 
get lighting the tree off the hook, or Jesus just doesn't know his meteorology, he doesn't, you know, he's just being irrational here. Um, but I think that the solution to this is rather simple. This is in the traditional understanding of, of what uh, this means. Uh, the season for, it wasn't the season for ripe figs. That's later in the fall or late summer. Uh, this is around the time of Passover, of course, uh, in, the, in the spring. Um, but fig trees, after winter, before, just before leaves appear, uh, these, these little knobs appear, they're, they're called pegeme, and they're edible. People often eat them, um, especially in the ancient world, um, as, as a snack. And the leaves would come on shortly after, so if you saw a fig tree with early leaves in, in spring, you could know it had these little knobs, these pegeme, that you can eat, you can, you can Google this later and look at these little things. Um, so that, that was what the tree was, was promising. And, and Jesus knew that, and Mark knows that. It's not the season for figs, but a tree in spring with leaves promised food. So it's false advertising. The temple, Jesus comes to the temple then. This is really Israel's third temple. Solomon built the first temple, and then that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Israel came back and rebuilt it, but it wasn't really as impressive. Herod comes along hundreds of years later, and in wanting to get good with the Jews, he does a massive renovation of the temple, an enlarging of the temple, a beautifying of it. In fact, it's, this renovation is still ongoing in, in Jesus' life, and will be after uh, Jesus' ascension. Um, but it was a, it was a massive um, temple now that's just the outer part, which is where this scene takes place. Uh, presumably, what was called the Court of the Gentiles was 500 yards by 325 yards. Uh, so not the temple proper, but the, the, temple, the outer walls around the temple. There were, there were these massive columns, 30 feet high stone columns all around that. Uh, Josephus, the historian Josephus describes the temple itself um, as you're approaching it in the morning. Uh, as Jesus and his disciples were, he describes it as astonishing. Much of the exterior was covered with gold. Um, and he says, as you're approaching, when the sun is shining off the temple, you either have to look away because it's so bright, or it looks like snow-capped mountains, he says, because everything that wasn't gold was, was pure white. So he describes this beautiful scene. And, and it was a busy place in Jesus' day, especially the week of Passover here, uh, full of priests their duty and caring for the temple and overseeing the sacrifices and full of people, worshippers there. But what Jesus confronts here is a massive commercial operation. Not people worshipping it. Essentially a, a giant farmer's market has been set up in the, the court of the Gentiles here, this large outer area of the, the temple complex. Um, it's not that, that there wasn't a great need for animals and some buying and selling to be going on around the temple somewhere in Jerusalem. Uh, people needed animals for sacrifices, but the animals and things were being sold at a premium, uh, high prices. Um, there was a, it was a big money-making scheme for the Sanhedrin that was overseeing this whole operation. The priests were in it as well, in on it. Uh, if, if you brought a lamb from home, if you traveled to Jerusalem from Galilee or something, uh, it was likely the priests were going to disqualify your lamb and force you to buy a lamb from their operation there. 
go some parallels in our world uh, to how that works. And then if you came from Galilee, you're going to have the wrong kind of money, too. It's you have to go to the money changers and get the right kind of currency, and there'll be a fee for that. And so with the big money-making scheme, verses 16, there was other merchandise being sold as well. Verse 16, Jesus confronts this in part by quoting from, Psalm, from Isaiah 56. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? A part of Israel's mission always, this isn't always well understood today, but a part of their mission always was to be a light to the nations. <laughs> to be a witness, to call the nation into worship the true God at Jerusalem. The Old Testament over and over and over again describes and anticipates that. Um, there wasn't yet time for the church to go around the world, to spread around the world, but Israel was to be a light to invite the world to the true God. And um, we find that in here in what was called the Court of the Gentiles, so there was a place for the nations there at the temple, and we might think, well, they're fulfilling that, but the court of the Gentiles served just as much as a place to exclude anyone who is not an ethnic Jew from the rest of the temple, from getting closer to the temple, which was not by God's design. Uh, anyone could become a worshiper of God at the temple. So it served to exclude the people, and, and actually this space that was reserved for non-Jews was a terrible place to worship because of all that was going on there. Uh, I was reminded of Place I used to study often in, in Florida, a library near our house. It was a nice, close place, a nice, quiet place to study. Uh, but it was also right next to a, a large elementary school. So it was a great place to study, but at 2.30 every day, it, become a, it became a terrible place to study <laughs> um, instantly. Uh, as, as I don't regret the little kid that poured into the library.
the church growth movement, among other things, taught us how to turn the worship of God into a product to be packaged and marketed um, and consumed. And, and this isn't just, a, just my observation or, or um, the observation of some. There are many articles in the New York Times and other secular publications that have observed in the last, in recent decades uh, the big business of the modern church. There are churches that have their own record labels that employ millionaire rock stars to travel around and spread their brand. Um, many large churches have started not planting gospel churches so much, but literally franchising. Um, they self-packaged brand and, and marketing tools and so on to, to church plants for huge amounts of money. So rather than giving towards church plants, they're literally taking money from church plants to spread their own plants. Uh, this is just become a common thing. Um, now, now some of these things I'm describing are, are not wrong in and of themselves, but they, they contribute to a dramatically different experience of church and of worship. The, the late Edward Farley of Vanderbilt University in comments that I think in white comparison with what Jesus confronted here in the temple wrote that contemporary worship intentionally often creates a tone that is casual, comfortable, chatty, busy, humorous, pleasant, and at times even cute. It goes on to suggest that if the seraphim assumed this Sunday morning mood, they would be addressing God not as holy, 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 but as nice, nice, nice. Part of the point that I want to make is, is the world is not helped when the church comes to look like the world. Right? If, if the church is just another concert or McDonald's or Walmart, or if the world is entertained and impressed rather than called to faith and repentance, if, if the simple means of grace by which believers commune with their Heavenly Father are, are eclipsed by programs and flashy fun and that sort of thing, the, the church is not fulfilling its distinct mission. You know, singing Psalm 131 should not feel the same as singing Jingle Bells or singing A2. The church is otherworldly. Let me give another example, and, and before I try to drive this home or particularly to us, understand, I don't give these examples to disparage or condescending in any way, but simply as illustrate sort of outward illustrations, examples, warnings as we think about what Jesus' evaluation of our worship, of our hearts. But the, the YMCA that we used in, in Florida had a, was a church that advertised its church and worship services um, on a permanent poster and, and had little brochures hung up there as well. Uh, the poster said this, Sons of Church exists to love and serve this great community. Everyone is welcome and wanted. We believe the best is yet to come, and we'd love to be a part of it. We are better together. Join us for our family-friendly gatherings every week. We have programs for infants through elementary school every week as well. Come join in the fun. Now, all of those things are good, right? And all of those things I think could be said of our church. Uh, in various ways, right? Family friendly and welcoming and enjoyment and, and so on, and service. Uh, but, but the thing I want to draw your attention to, and, and this is true of the entire brochure that was available there too, is that 
worship, any, any kind of language of worshiping God was absent and, and replaced by simply gathering. More than that, the, the means of grace or communing with God as the church was replaced by programs. The, the church's most important call of God to worship God, to be discipled in the Lord Jesus, to uh, gospel mission was replaced simply by language of community involvement and family fun. That's as far as why there was no mention anywhere of prayer. There was no mention of worshiping God, of discipleship. There wasn't a single mention of God himself. And here's the main point I want to make. And this is not to point fingers at something that's happening elsewhere, but, but merely to give external examples. The point is simply that anyone in our church as much as in any can have the outward show of religion, but be bearing no fruit. There are, there are important ways that we outwardly and intentionally maybe avoid some of these tendencies in our tradition, and, and that's important. But anyone can sit in any worship service as a consumer, rather than a worshiper. Your lips are moving, your vocal cords are singing, but your heart maybe is far from God. Your eyes are closed, your head is bowed. But you're not communing with your Heavenly Father in prayer. And asking for His grace, bringing your thanks to Him. Remembering your dependence on Him. Your eyes are maybe towards the preaching of the Word, but it's not making any impact in your heart. You're not growing deeper in your love and more willing in your service, more patient with others, and, and, and so on. There are many ways to miss the purpose of a relationship with God or, or of His church or times of worship. It's not a problem that's out there or a problem of certain churches. It's a problem of the heart, of, of your heart and my heart. Jesus wasn't at the temple ultimately confronting just buying and selling externally, he was confronting people's hearts and the heart of religion in Jerusalem. Well, after Jesus' disciples see the end of his object lesson with the tree, the next day they see it dead, um, he gives the point of the lesson. And I want to turn to point three of your outline here, verse 22. Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. You might paraphrase the implication there is not just some outward show, but have true faith in God. Don't be like the fig tree. Don't be like the temple. Right? An outward show with no fruit bearing heart communing with God. Don't use God. Use His gifts. Serve Him. Commune with Him. Trust Him to, to the point of fully committing yourself to Him. This is what it means to, to really have faith. Not just an outward show. The, the temple and the priesthood and the whole system of sacrifices and worship was a gracious gift of God to his people. To teach them about their sin, to teach them about their need and his grace and his love and his presence with them. It was a place to, to visually see them, the provision of God and the presence of God, and to pray. Likewise, God has given you blessings. Uh, privileges, good gifts in his church. He's giving his word and the Holy Spirit, the gift of prayer, 
singing praise and fellowship with the church. God provides all of these for you to cultivate fruits in you and through you. This is why I, I had us read earlier from Isaiah 5, where God illustrates this beautifully in this parable of the vineyard. Right? Pictures God as a vineyard owner who lovingly uh, cultivates a vineyard, which pictures the church. Right? He gives it rich soil and takes all the stones out and, and provides protection and excellent vines. And then he comes back to see the fruit that should be expected and, and it's worthless fruit, as we read. And he challenges Israel there in Isaiah 5. What, what more could I have done for you? What more could I have done? What, what are you doing with the good gifts of God's means of grace? I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you seeing fruit in your life? What is that fruit? There are lots of ways we could take on that question, but just, just begin with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. As you worship God, as you come to worship, hear His Word, as you pray to Him, as you outwardly at least go through the motions of worship and fellowship, or are you growing in your relationships, in, in your family, your work, or with relatives, or in your disappointments and fears? Are you growing in love, and joy, and peace? and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And Jesus is coming again uh, to judge those who had faith, those whose hearts were toward him sincerely, over against those who are just making a show of it. He, he gives a taste of that, that judgment here in his in this scene. The fig tree and the temple are an illustration of that. In one sense, the fig tree was already a bad tree. In one sense, all Jesus did was make visible the fact that it was a bad tree. He brought the rottenness out so the disciples could see it. Well, our, our inward reality will be exposed one day. This serves as a, a warning of that. But let me close by making the point that, that this is not to say that Jesus is coming one day to measure your faith. Right? To see if you had enough, or if your faith was pure enough, or strong enough. And I want to make that point this week and next week, because this, this larger passage, particularly the verses we'll come to next week, have been horribly abused and interpreted to mean that you're supposed to have a certain kind of faith, a certain level of faith, a certain strength of faith. For God to respond to you. That is not the teaching of the church. Jesus' point is simply that you would have faith, that you would have sincere faith towards Him, not just an outward show of religion. That faith would be present in your heart, real faith towards a living God. It will not be a perfect faith, it won't be an unwavering faith. And your relationship to God doesn't depend on it, it doesn't have to be. If the object of your faith is perfect, I mean, what you right. I just want to quote John Owen on, on this here. He says, You who have but a weak faith have a strong Christ. So that should all the world set itself against your little faith, it would not prevail. Sin cannot do it. Satan cannot do it. Hell cannot do it. 
So you take what we can faint hold on Christ. You take strong, sure, uncomfortable hold